what did you have for breakfast today? I don't eat breakfast. Okay. No, no breakfast at all. No breakfast at all. This podcast is brought to you by Morale Media. Are you an entrepreneur or maybe a marketer who wants to grow their business through content production? Maybe you're sick of dealing with agencies or want an outsourced solution that actually fits a budget? Well, Neural Media, our business, can help you with simple and affordable content production, saving you time and money by taking away that pain of producing the content. If you want to learn more, just head to neural.com slash media, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing. Have a look at all the different options that you have. Request or consider requesting a callback from me personally. If you have a friend that runs a business or is a marketer, do send them our way. It will help us keep the lights on and producing more juicy content. Listeners to this show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. If you want to learn yourself as to how to create content, maybe you want to make a podcast or your very own video, just download our free series on how to create a podcast and video at the very bottom of neural.com slash media. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, the CEO of Neural Media and your host for this podcast. In this episode, I have for you Carl Berrien. Carl is the Chief Technology Officer of Atmo Biosciences. He's a research fellow at RMIT University and a fellow IBS sufferer. Many of the listeners and readers may already know about my running IBS issues, a gut disorder that I'd like to well and truly put to bed for good. The constant anxiety, nausea and pain I've suffered from probably since my early 20s is still really unresolved and it's simply down to the fact that doctors and researchers don't truly understand what's going on inside the mysterious gastrointestinal tract, particularly for these sort of gut or gas-based disorders. Now, this revolutionary piece of science in the form of an electronic pill is so transformative that Kyle, his research colleagues at RMIT and at Mobile Sciences could potentially change my and many other people's lives forever, like permitting that they get through all the necessary regulatory hoops and hurdles, we could know how to fix this general catch-all phrase of IBS for good. And I thought it was my civic duty to get Kyle on the podcast to make gut sufferers out there aware of the work that Kyle and the team at Atmo does so we can continue to encourage this groundbreaking research in Australia. This was a information-filled chat where we covered a lot in an hour, including IBS, Giardia and Gastro, going from oil to audio to nanomaterials, why the gut and breath tests are largely misunderstood, how the Atmos gut capsule will transform this area, getting the regulatory tick of approval and Atmos direct-to-consumer approach. I think this will be very enjoyable for anyone who's liked our previous chats on gut issues or medical topics uh, that's generally on some form of groundbreaking area. Uh, If you enjoy this episode, do subscribe on your podcast app or leave us a rating that will go a long way in helping us grow the podcast. 
If you want something similar, just check out my chat with Dr. Iggy Suse, episode 71, where we spoke about diseases beginning in the gut. All show notes and previous guests are at neural.com slash podcast. It's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. But as I say each week, thank you so much for listening, our regulars for coming back, our newbies. Thanks for giving us a shot. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kyle Berrien. Kyle, thanks for joining me on this, well, it's a pretty flat day, considering it's summer at the moment. Yeah, it's beautiful out. Um, what is it, like 25, 26, something 25 like 25 degrees. Um, first question for you, um, I had for you as a fellow IBS sufferer, what's sort of the worst... Uh, public situation you've been in like for example i people might find this funny but i've got an app on uh on my phone well actually you know what i don't have it anymore but it was uh it was like public toilet finder or something oh that's like. fantastic <laughs> yeah have you ever had any awkward situations like that at all no i'm pretty lucky my my ibs isn't that severe um so i've had issues at work where I've been in meetings and I've, I've felt that need to, to, to go to the toilet, but I've never been stuck out at a situation um, where I couldn't find a toilet quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a cruel twist of fate that while you were starting out to create this pill and mm-hmm. this program that you sort of developed this issue yourself. I, I was curious, how did you, how do you think it came about? Like I have a belief that it came from gastro Yep. for myself, yep. um, like a really bad bout of gastro. Um, do, you, do you think there's any connection there at all with I, how it comes about? I, I have no idea of how this thing starts, but I do have a similar story, um, traveling through India, getting Guardia, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, having multiple bouts of that, multiple rounds of antibiotics, and that's when I started to notice it. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've... My bar, my barber, she, uh, she had Giardia, Giardia as well. Yeah. She was in Bali or somewhere like that. Like maybe it was Thailand, sort of along, uh, along like this river that people often go like club clubbing and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And she reckons that she caught it there, and obviously she had it. And they they dose you pretty heavily with antibiotics. Right? Very very heavily. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like a napalm to your entire body. <laughs> exactly. And see, I had the gastro. I didn't take antibiotics, but I didn't take any sort of probiotic during it, or like, um, you know at the same time and it's so funny because i was telling you before and my our guests oh, sorry our listeners will know that i've done the fmt yeah during that fmt process the last week i got gastro and right. so i had one more fmt to do out of 10 and what was super fascinating is i decided like i was still really sick after a week like i was just run down and yeah and i thought you know what i'm just gonna tr- see what the fmt does during while you have this and it's like it was like an immediate really impact on my gut okay it was it was amazing um and i did another two or three fmts after that um that definitely i I think it definitely does help like it just introduces new species but the problem is that you need to eat certain foods to make sure they survive well i mean i mean the problem for me with the fmts is where are they getting it? Like, how do, know, how yeah. do you actually, um, how do you identify the best donors? And, you know, you have to go through that process to see 
who who these super donors are <laughs> so you can continually go back to them to get these you know these strains that you're after yeah and they, they'd have to like how that would impact their lives so much as well because oh. they've got to go to the bathroom they've got to collect the sample make sure it's stored properly yes give it to you're gonna hope that they live locally yeah that's right i, I, I don't know what they get they must get paid like i, th- I remember hearing like a hundred dollars per sample or yeah, something like that, that does not seem like enough i, I you reckon well, I, I bet you've probably sampled your stool many times, yeah. as, as I have during this process. It yeah. is not fun. Yeah, right? it's not fun at all. And uh, yeah, the, each FMT is like four hundred dollars. Mm. So I don't know. It's it's intriguing. I, I reckon it's probably one hundred to one fifty, which doesn't sound like a lot considering no. what you have to do. Well, and what's the clinician getting? Yeah, that's well. The rest of it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> those things. Like I got to say, those things are brilliant factories for our supplements and whatnot. Yes. Um, yeah. When, when I was looking at all this in my notes, and um, I, I found it really fascinating, like your background, because yep. you you started with audio, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I don't know how. You, actually, I started on oil rigs. I really. Yeah, I finished. Uh, you know. I finished high school, went to Melbourne University, did a basic science degree, failed everything in the first six months, dropped out, moved over to the UK, worked on oil rigs in the North Sea. You're kidding. And then I realized that that's absolutely not what I wanted to do with my life. So I uh, came back to Australia and I studied audio engineering. Yeah, yeah. So you did audio engineering, you did your bachelor's, and then you pivoted. No, you're an audio visual technician for running your own business yes. yeah. and yep. then you sort of pivoted into this area and eventually you've done this phd in uh what is, what is it called nanometrics or nanomaterials, nanomaterials so yeah. yeah it's a material science phd yeah um based around gas permeable membranes okay yeah how did that all come about like i know that you the, the how i found it was on your linkedin profile you spoke about your career prior as a technician yeah and i, I was you know, you must have been soldering things together and Absolutely. all that sort of stuff because I know dealing with audio and visual equipment, it can get a bit like that. Yes. Um, is that how you got this interest? Like, where did you go? All right, I'm going to go to RMIT and I'm going to do a PhD in nanomaterials. Well, so <laughs> I, I realized that I needed a, an electrical engineering degree to do what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I was I soldering kinda... stuff with audio. I, I loved the signal processing within audio. I loved that... that um, electrical flow pathways and so I went back and I did electronic engineering mm-hmm. at RMIT and one of my professors in my undergrad he asked me to do a PhD with him mm-hmm. and um, one of the projects that he pitched to me at the time was developing a capsule that monitors um, gas production within ruminants right right so we wanted to understand what carbon dioxide and methane emissions there were within cattle while they're grazing in the field Yeah. Um, to try to help breed lower-emitting animals. And we were given money by the government at the time um, leading up to the carbon tax to try to, for them to know appropriate um, tax rates to put on farmers. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> wow. and then during that process, you know, you had the changeover of the government, and all of a sudden, we didn't believe in climate change, and we scrapped the carbon tax, and so all of our funding went out the window, and we pivoted um, to what actually was my professor's original idea, which was to um, 
use that same mechanism using the gases as biomarkers to understand the microbial groups that live inside of your body. And and we were um, focusing on human health after that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, how do you prof- pronounce that professor's name? Professor Kurosh Kalantazadeh. Zadeh. That's it. Yes. Iranian. Yeah, he, uh, Iranian. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he's an interesting character because he was the guy who sort of, sort of pivoted or at least thought of instead of measuring that out, that ex, that external element of the gases measuring things external internally internally right? that's right yeah, yeah. It's sort of uh, a complete inversion of what what was standard at the time yeah yeah um, yeah it's 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 funny reading about that and how you guys pivoted all of that um, into this into this little thing which is now a fledgling company in a way that's right um I, w- I wanted to just touch again on that personal element because I, I, we were chatting before and, you know, I've had IBS and uh, well, what we believe is SIBO mm-hmm. um, as well as this sort of visceral hypersensitivity. And they know it's sort of that because if I drink like hot things like this, I'll feel, I'll have sensations because of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been to gastroenterologists who don't believe in IBS and all these sort of things, right? Yes. I've had numerous colonoscopies. Uh and I, I just really, like, it It stood out to me when you guys were talking about how this is sort of, not pseudoscience, but the way to measure things in this area is there's just nothing really there. It, it's, it's really shocking, actually. When we started working in this field, we were absolutely shocked with how much in its infancy the knowledge around the pathogenesis of all of these disorders and even the arguments that take place at conferences around small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO or IBS and, and how you actually a, treat IBS and how you, um, how you label IBS because, you know, IBS has a, is, is a disorder, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a disease. It's, it's kind of a catch-all where you have IBS you know, diarrhea, you have IBS constipation yeah. and how can they be the same thing? You know, thing? <laughs> and then you have IBS mixed, right? Which is you're either constipated or you have diarrhea mixing between the two. And then there's IBS undefined, Yeah, you know, and that's how, if you're in that group, you're good luck because, you know, they don't understand the ones that they, they understand. Well, you also get doctors who think IBD and IBS are the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they, have, <laughs> they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about there. So, so I think that really, to me, highlights how transformative this pill and this idea is, particularly around identifying the problems. And I, like, I just wanted you to explain, uh, right now, I think... Most people would know from previous interviews I've had, but basically the only way to measure IBS is you do these gas tests, like a breath test. So you drink something and then you measure that over a period of three hours or something like that. Yeah. So why in these tests is is it only got, I think you highlighted in one interview, like a 70% accuracy, but there's lots of false negatives and positives. Yes. Why is that? Well, how does it work? Okay, so... How it works, let's start there, right? So there's a whole bunch of conditioning that you have to do prior to doing these breath tests. Yeah. So you have to basically flatline all gas production within your gastrointestinal tract to try to understand what your baseline is. Then you give a a substrate challenge. So you're challenging those bacterial communities within your, your gut with one specific substrate. And and as it's traveling through your gut, 
the microbial groups are fermenting it. So they're, they're using it as their only food source, or not their only food source, but their main food source, and they're creating gas. So that gas is created within the gut, it's transferred across the epithelial wall into the bloodstream, mm-hmm. circulated around the, bl- the blood and into your lungs, yeah. and then transitions into your breath. And so each one of those stages has a time constant associated with it, and each one of those stages has a d- dilution factor associated with it. Mm-hmm. So trying to then look at both the quantity of gas that you're produced in your, in your breath and the timing of when it's produced in your breath with reference to when you ingested that sugar load is a little bit hand wavy. So they say, so they say, you know, if you've gone over 10 parts per million of gas production, you know, before 30 minutes or 50 minutes, I can't remember what the threshold of diagnostic is off the top of my head. They're saying that, well, that's a sign of an early rise in hydrogen production. So therefore you have um, the wrong bacteria in the wrong place within your small intestine. However, when you actually go a little bit deeper into the science and you start to challenge that idea, which a lot of scientists have done, where they've um, radio-labeled or they put a radionuclide on that carbohydrate to try to um, take nuclear medicine or, or CT scans. of While they're doing uh, it. While they're doing it, to try to understand where these sugars are in your body whilst they're being fermented. And one of the problems is when you give um, somebody a challenge of a single carbohydrate, there are, each carbohydrate has a different effect on transit and motility. Uh-huh. So specific carbohydrates will hasten transit. So lactulose, um, you know, which is the main one for yeah. SIBO, will hasten transit. So... Um, through an osmotic effect, it will already be in the colon, fermenting within the colon early enough to cause that early rise within um, the hydrogen production within your breath, and so therefore giving you a false positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so what your pill does, maybe you can explain your pill mm-hmm. um, and how that changes that, because it seems like you're taking away the... the the need to do the CT scan because now you can just measure that through via Bluetooth onto your phone with this device. Yeah. And you can also just eat normally Yes, and measure things that way. So um, our capsule, what we've made is um, just an electronic pill the size of a vitamin pill, mm-hmm. large fish oil capsule, that as it transits through your gastrointestinal tract is measuring numerous gases, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, methane and importantly we measure oxygen so we use oxygen as a location marker so we see a huge drop in oxygen as you transit out of your stomach and into your small bowel and as it transits from your small bowel through the ileocecal valve into your large bowel you'll see another drop within that oxygen profile. So we can tell which organ it is. And as we're telling which organ it is, we're monitoring the gases that are produced within that organ. So if you wanted to test for, say, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and you want to see, well, do we have too much or too many bacteria um, proximally within the small bowel or too, too early within the small bowel, 
then you're, you're looking for that hydrogen production just after the gastric emptying event. Right. And so we're, we're looking to expand on these analytes that we're, we're measuring at the moment. Um, we're looking to uh, open it up to hydrogen sulfide, which is really interesting gas because it's very important, what they call a gasotransmitter. So the microbiome uses this gas to send signals out to the rest of the microbial groups to tell really? them what to do. But it's also an indication of inflammation. Well, it's actually a little bit more important than that. It's not just an indication of inflammation. It can cause inflammation when it gets above a certain level, but it can also reduce inflammation if it's within the right band. (laughs) It's a very complicated area, but we're also looking at some um, short-chain fatty acids like acetate, propionate, butyrate, which again, are extraordinarily important for the health of the gastrointestinal walls. So butyrate is anti-inflammatory. It has anti-carcinogenic effects. um, And so there's a lot of functional food groups out there, probiotic probiotic groups, prebiotic groups that are trying to get inulin into your large bowel. However, they don't have any science of whether it's all being formed in the start of your large bowel or just within the, the... the colon itself, um, because to have its anti-carcinogenic effect, it has to be um, distributed evenly throughout the entire large bowel. Hmm. And so we're hoping to shed some light on that, how that um, f- that system actually works, and to try to um, help people find the right foods for the diet to to actually, you know, make sure that they're not going to develop cancerous in the in the future yeah and then also to try to um diagnose specific diseases and disorders like um ulcerative colitis or ibs or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth yeah. and actually understanding what ibs is that's the key thing i think i think that's a very tall order yeah uh, that's we, we'd <laughs> like to play a role in that um i i I'm definitely not um, setting out <laughs> thinking that we're going to reinvent the wheel, but uh, we'll, we'll hopefully be a part of the generation that, that helps to understand that area a little bit more. Well, it had me thinking when I was doing my research, like y- you obviously suffer from this. Have you been able to partake in any of the studies yourself? So unfortunately, to date, we've only been had ethics approval to do it on healthy subjects. Uh-huh. So... I'm not really. Yeah, so we, we've just transitioned out, and we've started um, to ramp up um, to raise money to be able to do uh, clinical trials in people with SIBO, people with IBS, um, each different phenotype of IBS. Uh, and so, I personally have not taken it yet, but I will be within the first group of um, disease patients. Wow. Yes. Yeah, because it just had me thinking about. What has this taught you about how to tr- like? You've measured these healthy people. Mm-hmm. What has it taught you about how to treat yourself, at least in the with the information that you currently have? Because like you know, some of the things that you guys learned in this research was very interesting. Like the thing you've mentioned a few times, like the oxygen levels in the colon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, food staying in the digestive tract too long and causing a sort of Im- immune response in a way. Yep. And the impact particularly of fiber yes. on the gut. Yes. Um, so how has it changed the way that you pro- approach your IBS? Well, it's, it's made me really 
um, start to have a bit more of a balanced diet because I've seen um, some of the byproducts that are created if you have like a full meat diet or you don't have enough fiber or you have a just a all legume diet where your fiber intake is is through the roof yeah. and neither of those things are particularly healthy you know um, we saw within our extreme high fiber case where they ate nothing but legumes pretty much and uh they had a high amount of oxygen within their colon. And that is not very good at all. So that area is meant to be anaerobic. It's meant to have no oxygen around. The bacteria in that area die if they come into contact with too much oxygen. Really? And so you don't want to flush out that microbiome that you've been creating and cultivating your entire life, right? You you want to try to keep it in, in a good place. Yeah, so you don't you don't have too much meat, you don't have too much carbohydrates. Yep. You make sure that you have a decent amount of veggies that don't have too much uh, fructose <laughs> in it. Exactly. And, and still a decent amount of fat, but not too much as yes. well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it's... I was talking about this with my partner last night. She's like, it's just the old adage, like a balanced diet really works. You look at places like those blue zones. I've read... Um, what's that book from the Longevity Institute... Um, he, oh, this researcher, Dr. Volta Lungo. Okay. This this one here, the longevity okay, diet. The longevity diet. Yeah, he he studied those blue zones, and there was a few others that he encompassed as well. And he he also mapped out things like how the change in diet in places like Okinawa, mm-hmm. which is one of these blue zones, had had affected the younger generations because they'd taken on a more American diet. Yep. Or or elements of more American diets, and so yeah, just although he was sort of preaching more not veganism but like vegetarianism yep. which i was suspect of a few things but yeah um yeah i think it just a, a lot of that holds true like you just got to have that balanced diet eat where your ancestors are from uh, as, as well which is one thing that yes. you've spoken about so like if you grew up so my f- dad's family's from cyprus which is an island they eat lots of seafood and fish yep. and stuff like that make sure you have some of that on a weekly basis if you can yep um you know, and then mother's family is from sort of a coastal region as well. And so yep. you try and eat what you can where they grew up. And so it's it's interesting. Yeah. And it, it's 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 also interesting um, reading the papers about, um, you know, development in your early life and the development of the microbiome in your early life, specifically within the first five months of your life. Because that's, huh. that's really where the the groundwork is put in on what your microbiome makeup actually looks like. And a lot of that is, you know, unfortunately it's, it's about how you're born. Uh, you know, are you C-section or vaginal birth? Um, are you breastfeeding or are you having formula that's been, um, sterilized? Uh, you know, how, how much uh, sterilization are people putting on your dummy? And, you know, all of this stuff actually plays a big role in setting up that microbiome for your later life. Yeah. Well, my current G- GP, who's specifically looked at the SIBO issues, believes that uh, me having, or was it, uh, tonsillitis for like six years in a row wow. every, annually. Yep. Uh, and the amount of antibiotics I would... Because he looks at my entire history. Yeah. Uh, would have definitely impacted my susceptibility for getting these sort of issues, he believes. Yeah. So, it's it's in- interesting. I know we were chatting before about this. So, you were saying that you believe that the approach of just looking at the biome, like, you know, 
just these strains being in these ranges is like the optimal way to live is potentially the wrong way to think about it. Yeah, I the way I think about it is um, you can't identify a specific strain or multiples of strains that are always helpful, always beneficial, because you put them in different microbial communities and all of a sudden they don't act in the same way. Um, I have no examples off the top of my head, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've, we're holding too close a microscope on this thing. Um, cause the, so, it's sort of like a trend topic and people are just going nuts. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody is getting in at that atomic level. Let, let's look at how these atoms are actually put together, where you actually have to take a step back and how what is the interaction between these microbial groups, you know, mm. because they're all... You know, you, you have different layers of metabolism here where you're giving your substrate and they're being fermented or they're being um, metabolized by one group of bacteria, created byproducts for the next group of bacteria, byproducts for the next group of bacteria. And so the byproducts that are created are the things that are giving you your sensitivity issues, that are giving you the inflammation within the bowel. It, yeah. It's not the specific to that bacterial strain, it's the byproduct that's created by it. Yeah. And so there are uh, certain situations in which communities with, you know, healthy or good bacteria for you that are creating bad byproducts. Yeah. Now, the pill itself, one, one big question I had was, how does this thing measure? the Like, it sits within a casing. So yep. how does it actually measure this stuff when it's in there? Yeah. So this was actually the subject of my PhD. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> I did my PhD um, on gas permeable membranes. And so... Uh-huh, that's right. So we have one section of the capsule that's uh, uh, got a gas permeable membrane that allows the gases and other volatiles to penetrate with into the capsule so we can measure them. But it doesn't allow the, you know, the acidic liquids of the stomach or some of the fecal matter or, um, or the uh, any of the the liquids within the 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 gastrointestinal tract to actually penetrate into the electronics. Huh. And so, what is that membrane made out of? Like this goes to that sort of at that nano level, but yes, w- what is it made out of exactly? Well. I don't know if I want to go too deep into it. <laughs> ah, true, true, good point. <laughs> but I mean, you could read my uh, my thesis to get a, a general understanding of how these things work. But it, it has a backbone of a thing called polydimethylsiloxane. Mm-hmm. It's a rubbery polymer. It's a it's it's a basically a silicone. So a very similar to what is um, the sealant on your windows. Uh-huh. Very similar to actually the exact same polymer that McDonald's puts into their French fries. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but McDonald's puts PDMS within its French fries. What? Yes. That's a bit of a worry. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think to to hold it together or something like wow. that. Wow. Yeah. Where is it made? Like that, you know, because one of the things I noticed is the uh, the the medtech pharmaceutical space here in melbourne is very proud of you guys at least when that release came out they're like oh look at how good our scene is and blah 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 which is it's they've got a point but 
um, I was curious: is it is it manufactured locally? When you when you did the original trial of like twenty six people or something, twenty three, twenty three. Yeah. Um, where was it made? It was all we we got our, our PCBs, our printed circuit boards, made in New Zealand. Okay. Uh, but all of the um, fabrication was done in Melbourne at RMIT in the in the space in the space um, by a very talented engineer of ours, uh, Mr. Nam Ha. He is uh, the developer, and he has designed the, all the electronics of the capsule. Mm-hmm. Um, extraordinarily talented, and uh, he has the smallest hands and steadiest hands that is able to solder these things. I've never seen anybody do it, do it wow. like him. Really amazing. Um, and he's been able to incorporate my membrane design and fabrication into his electronic structure. Right. And so that combined gives you this pill. Yeah. Are they easy to swallow? I know I struggle with swallowing <laughs> things, but are they like, are they monster pills or? Uh, we've never had a problem with people swallowing it. Okay. Um, with the. You know, it, it is visually daunting. It's the size of a fish oil tablet. I think that's visually daunting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we haven't had any issues. And we've been talking to some pediatric gastroenterologists that are interested in using it in trials for children to the age of um, 12, down to the age of 12. So okay. they, they don't see a problem with that size of swallowing. And and where does sort of the, the development and iteration go from here? Like, obviously, you've got... What you really need to do now is trial it on larger groups of people, which yes. is obviously part of this commercialization and the capital raise. Yep. What, what else needs to happen? Is it, uh, you know, making the pill smaller or bigger or so you can fit more things in there or, like you said, measuring of more things? Where does it sort of go over the next few years for that launch of or idealistic launch of 21, 22? Yeah, so... We have nailed down uh, clinical indications that we're going after. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when you're talking about actually being used as a diagnostic tool, there are a lot of regulatory hurdles that you have to get over. Now, we've been a university project uh, until the end of last year, the start of this year, where we've spun out this company. Uh, We're doing a capital raise at the moment. And um, part of that raise is about developing the technology under what's called a certified quality management system. And that's to then take all of these certified documentation to your um, your regulatory body, TGA, FDA, or the CE mark in in the uh, in, in Europe, Europe. Yeah. and and to allow them to to give you the tick of approval for you to go and sell your device. Right. And so, being able to prove specific things within each clinical indication is is very critical. So, a really low clinical hanging fruit for us, a clinical indication, is uh, motility and transit time. So, just tracking how it's moving through your body. There is a predicate device on the on the market. It's uh, the smart pill. Uh, it's made by Medtronic and it measures pH. So that's just looking at how is it transiting through your body, nothing more. And so we're going to piggyback on that to get into the market. Uh-huh. Right? And so that's a very low hanging fruit in terms of the amount of clinical data we'll need to show yeah. because all we have to show is 
okay, it's transiting from this organ into this organ. And so we're doing gastric emptying time, small bowel transit time, large bowel transit time, and total transit time. Right. So as long as we're able to show the, those things consistently and safely, um, you know, compared to a predicate device, then we're going to get that tick of approval to, to, to move forward. And so th- when you do this sort of stuff to get that tick of approval, let's say with this pill, you just want to show that motility element. Is is that all you're allowed to advertise the device when you're eventually selling it for? Or can you like go and include other elements or do you have to do n- next rounds of testing to show that? Yeah, so you are definitely not able to advertise for off-label use. If, if it's okay. been indicated for motility and transit time, then you can't be advertising it for SIBO. Okay. But if you can show that these other gases that we're measuring, not just oxygen, but the other gases, so hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide, are important within that motility sphere, then we're able to report on those gases. Uh-huh. Right. So we're not able to advertise for off-label use, but that doesn't stop people using it off-label. Okay. Wow. And, you know, I I thought about, like, the business model and all. This is a huge addressable market. Like, I I just thought about, like, you know, look at all the people who could potentially do this or do colonoscopies each year and then multiply that out by people who need to do it multiple years and each is like it's just a massive massive market so ibs is the largest indicated chronic disorder or disease in the united states yeah i'm not surprised by that yeah yeah it's huge and you know like do you guys want direct access to the consumer or like how do you want it to be like because you're sort of building this system where it's both you know an app where you can look at things on your phone right yeah so at the moment um the we're really focusing on that diagnostic uh, prescription pathway so we're, we're starting off where that phone is really just an indicator for the um, patient whether the capsule is still in the body and the test is taking place or if it's come uh, out okay so eventually, once the science is a little bit more sound, once we have a better indication of, of what the outcomes are by our readings, then we'll start to look at a direct-to-consumer approach. Okay. Um, you know, because we do want to empower the consumer. We do want people to be able to test their diet and, and how is that actually directly affecting these microbial groups and the byproducts therefore created by these microbial groups. But we really need to make sure that we have the scientific backing to give those claims across. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know like from your perspective, obviously someone who suffers from this, you want to be able to get it out there as soon as possible, but you've got to do it the right way. The right way. Absolutely. We first, first and foremost, we want to make sure we're not going to hurt people. (laughs) And then then we want to make sure that we're not just going to be another snake oil salesman that gives you this device at, you know, 500 bucks a pop and then, you know, pockets the money and gives you some little, you know, feel good story about, Oh yeah, you should definitely eat more rounded and healthy diet done yeah yeah look i've got a brother who's um type 1 diabetic and um he knows like it's sort of cruel how expensive a lot of that equipment can be i know a lot of it's covered by medicare and and all that but still it's sort of you know 
they need it to basically live and these these companies have got like a real stranglehold on this thing yeah um so it's it's going to be interesting to see how this this pans out um with with atmo itself how did this sort of come about like why did you guys go together and just say well we're going to find found this company and we're going to commercialize it like who led the way there amongst the team well i think that was a that was a reaction to the stage that we are at so government grants and those arc and hmrc grants are really good at helping you develop that fundamental science of it Mm-hmm. However, when you start getting to a point, they want to see that there's match, at least matched funds from industry. So you either have to go out and partner with a with an industry group that's already established, or you have to create that group. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we we were in discussions with numerous numerous uh, partners, potential partners, and we felt that we were probably better off by making our own entity uh, and uh, moving it forward that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that we're, we're right now, we're, we're right in that, um, the valley of death, as they call it <laughs> within tech dev, right? Or med tech dev, where we've done our initial clinical trials. We've done all of that grant funding. And now we, we're trying to step out and, and bridge the gap until we have all of the clinical data we need for a reg submission and getting to market. And we're just in that stage now where the, it's high enough risk to to be um, unattractive to certain in potential investors. But we're also, we've got such potential that, you know, people who have the deep pockets and see the potential and, and they're putting some money into it. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's very interesting with this stage, like it's just so different to most other tech businesses because if it was a software business, uh, you just raise the money and, you know, four months later, you've got some working product. But with this, because, and it is because it's a more, like the market is bigger, obviously, than than your standard, like uh, software as a service company for pet stores. (laughs) Like this is, this is a very big, big thing. So... Obviously, there's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of work that has to go into it. Yep. Um, do you, how do you are you still working as a research fellow at RMIT? Like, do you split your time between the two? No. So I'm solely CTO of uh, Atmo Biosciences. Mm-hmm. I have a um, adjunct appointment at RMIT. So RMIT wants to continue to support the work that we do. So we do a lot of um, development and testing still within the labs at RMIT. So we're working in lockstep with with RMIT on this one. Um, our professor, who is the one of the initial inventors of this device, Professor Karosh Kalantazadeh, he's moved to University of New South Wales. So I also have an adjunct appointment at University of New South Wales, where we have a NHMRC grant where we're trying to develop that short-chain fatty acid sensing. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I, I've got numerous research parts of my job, but my, my core focus is on the product development and getting it into our own pilot clinical trials that we have coming up. Well, what does an ad- adjunct fellow do? Are you sort of there on a 
on a casual basis doing very specific research. Is that sort of how it works? So it's so there are numerous numerous ways that an adjunct appointment works, but essentially. Um, my adjunct appointment at RMIT means that I still have access to the to the labs. I still have access to all of the research database, so I can continue to to research or, or read up on what the latest research is. Um, and so RMIT gets some benefits out of this. If I publish any new articles, you know, I still have that affiliation. Um, RMIT still has their badge um, that you know this product was spun out of. RMIT and yeah. now is within Atmo Biosciences. Uh-huh. That's I, I'm yeah. It's like brilliant advertising for them. If, Absolutely. If if, if a, a you know a company can be formed from this, it's sort of the next wave of people intrigued by this area. Absolutely. It looks, it looks fantastic. Yeah. It's a, it's a great you know stamp of approval for the university, and I know that RMIT has worked really hard at um, trying to differentiate itself as um, an entrepreneurial university and uh unfortunately there has been setbacks within that where a lot of the tech hasn't been able to get out but you know we we managed to do it and i think this is across the board in australian universities that um spin outs or tech transfer from ip developed at a university isn't always the easiest you know you you look at the united states mit stanford and they've got such clear pathways of of how they spin out tech in australia we just don't have that um what do you think is the major difference there uh, there's there's a lot of of differences there but one of the main ones is um the supporting industry and supporting funds so capital capital right it's all about capital so you know stanford where's that located well right next to silicon valley where (laughs) you know there are people waiting to throw money at you as soon as you come out the door with some new tech so we're, we're a little bit um hard done by that way in australia where we don't quite have the people with the pockets as deep as they do in the states Mm. yeah it's something that i was I was funnily enough thinking about last night when I was looking at do you what's best to bootstrap a business or to raise money and in instances like this where you're building key infrastructure I think capital you absolutely need you need yeah. we, well and also because there are such stringent requirements by um, the reg, reg bodies that we have so much documentation that needs to be put in place and you need to be accredited under this quality management system which it requires capital to do mm-hmm. um, and because you got to pay lawyers or specialists to specialists help do the application you, absolutely yeah. and then you're constantly audited and and so yeah. it's it's a process and you know i think bootstrapping if you can um in med tech is 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 hard but there are lots of instances of it um you know there's there's a really great med tech company out of melbourne here um seer medical okay they came through the and health program with us how do you spell it s-e-e-r seer yeah um they are an epilepsy monitoring um hardware and software back end okay and so they came out of uh, Melbourne University, um, developed tech, and and they've managed to bootstrap this uh, this company together. And I tell you what, they're just going great guns. They, you know, they're 
started in Melbourne only two years ago, I believe, and they're already operating in four different states and in, out of like six different hospitals. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, look, we've interviewed a few people from this space now, like um, uh, the guys at Clinicloud, and they've also formed a new company now called CC Labs. Okay. AI, which is sort of wetware as a service, like yep. neuroscience wetware. Um, so you can hire neurons to do experiments on wow. at, at whatever how many hours days you want which yeah. is super interesting that is um so yeah i think there's a there's actually quite a lot happening here i've been surprised as yes. we've got into this this area and sort of tried to interview people and talk to them about different things the interesting thing is sometimes when you email professors you know maybe they focus on something like crispr casp9 and I reckon they're so busy, like they just they don't even respond. You've just yeah. got to constantly hit them up like ten different times because there's just so much going on here. Absolutely. And I, if you had emailed us in January, February of 2018, we just you would have been lost in the sea of emails yeah. that we were getting. Yeah. You know, we were getting. I, me personally, out of our, our Nature Electronics paper that came out, um, and the subsequent media release that came out after that, we were getting. 20 to 30 emails a day from patients patients that are suffering yeah and then you have the media inquiries and then you have people trying to set up collaborations with you and yeah it's it was overwhelming yeah i mean i looked at um google scholar i've I've sort of felt fallen into this space of google scholar it's super fascinating how this is sort of like the thing you know if we in media look at like twitter pages people in this research space are all about like the Google Scholar pages and I was just like looking at the amount of times you guys have been referenced just goes off the charts in yes. 2018 and yep. um, particularly uh, your colleague uh, Professor Karosh or yep. Koresh? Karosh. Karosh. Yeah. Um, just the amount of times his work has been referenced yep. is just going parabolic almost. Yeah. I mean, Karosh is one of those uh, researchers who is able to make major strides in quite varied fields. Mm. So he had a, um, he was a part of a science paper that came out in late 2018 or mid 2018 uh, around liquid metal, an exfoliation of two dimensional materials out of liquid metals. <laughs> and so, you know, when you compare that to making med tech, it's a little bit different, but, and I think that just shows you how varied um, some of these professors, especially him, um, the work that they work on is. Yeah. I'd love to get him in and interview him when he's here. <laughs> <laughs> he's um, an interesting fellow. He he certainly seems like it. Um, now, I know we've got a hard stop, so I've got some short, fast questions to finish off. Okay, let's do it. Uh, what does your morning routine look like? Um, so, my morning routine is uh, snooze my alarm <laughs> many times until I... Uh, I panic and have to make it out the door very quickly. Uh, it generally involves me feeding the dogs. Yeah. What breed? I have uh, a greyhound and a chocolate Labrador. Mm-hmm. And we have two cats. So I have to feed the cats okay. as well and make sure all the water is topped up. <laughs> and then finally uh, manicure my beard. Okay. <laughs> of then, course. And then make it out the door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what does your evening routine look like? How do you decompress at night? Yeah, so that that's just about, um, you know, being together with my partner and cooking uh, dinner together and making sure that we eat that meal and discuss our day. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, best purchase under $200? 
Oh, that's tough. That's tough. Um, I think it's okay. So I do a lot of hiking. Okay. So it's this inline water filter uh, for my my bladder, my water bladder. So right. it, it allows me not to use those disgusting um, uh, purification tablets. Okay. Yeah. So if you're out there, you can go grab some water and just put it through this filter. Yeah, that's right. So it just is inline from my my bladder to my mouth, so I could just suck it through like normally. Right. Yeah, it's great. There you go. Yeah. Um, and that was only thirty bucks, by the way. Jeez, yeah, fantastic. That's pretty good. <laughs> Uh, last question for you. If you had to choose a book for the audience for Christmas, uh, I know I've just passed, but <laughs> coming up to, to next Christmas, uh, what would that book be and why? That's a, a good question. Um, so, well, look, I, I probably should be telling you some, you know, healthy gut book that you should go and read, <laughs> but I'd, I tend to try to not read a lot of those books. I try to read the papers that sort of inform those books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I haven't actually read a lot of them. Uh, okay. So what I would recommend you to read is uh, 1984, Awesome World, because uh-huh. it, it's all happening. Yeah, it is all happening. Yeah. Yeah, the, that whole stuff in the tech scene right now and just... It's it's super fascinating. I've been speaking to a lot of guests about that. We've got a lot of comedians that come on. Yeah. And uh, just some of the things that happen. The the and this is why I sort of work in the crypto space as well because part of media is censorship. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. uh, crypto, you can't censor yep. at all. So uh, to we experiment need a crypto with that, media. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's there's something called Steemit, uh, which is probably the leading one at the moment. But a former guest. Um, uh, from Spot and Inkle. So Inkle is like a, uh, a media sort of app that allows you to s- use many subscriptions like New York Times, Atlantic, etc. Yep. They've created um, something that f- completely f- fixes a lot of these censorship issues, but also how journalists and so forth get paid. Okay. Um, so, so just informing you on, on how they're getting paid? Well, they've created a white paper for a new cryptocurrency. Okay. Um, and it so, sort of supersedes all of the current specific currencies related to this space. Yeah. Um, but they're going to take about a year or so to launch it. It's called Spot. So, um, Sounds interesting. Yeah, it's very, that whole space is very interesting and I completely agree. The, the You know, even censorship on things like Patreon is is very scary and I, I think people should definitely have a look at that. That's been one of the most interesting things in the last month or so. Right, okay. Um, anyway, I know we've got to stop. You've got to get out of here but look, thanks for coming in. Uh, thanks for having I, me. I think what you guys are up to is super interesting. Obviously, you're in that process of raising capital so I think maybe where could people find you guys? Is it uh, on the website, yep. social media? What Our website. We, 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 we aren't very active on social media. Okay. Uh, we have a Twitter page, but we are definitely not active. Uh, yeah, hit us up uh, through our website, um, info, or our email, info at atmobiosciences.com, or our website, uh, atmobiosciences.com. Yeah, and we'll, we'll make sure we link all of that. But, um, yeah, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for making it to the end before you run off, we need your help to grow this audience. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon 
or consider sharing this with a friend who you think would enjoy these sorts of episodes and this will go a very, very long way in helping us build the audience. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Twitter or consider subscribing on YouTube as well. You just need to search for Neural, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E or consider following us on Instagram as well by searching Uncommon, U-N-C-O-M-M-O-N. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or maybe a marketer who wants to grow their business through content production? Maybe you're sick of dealing with agencies or want an outsourced solution that actually fits a budget? Well, Neural Media, our business, can help you with simple and affordable content production, saving you time and money by taking away that pain of producing the content. If you want to learn more, just head to neural.com slash media, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing. Have a look at all the different options that you have. Request or consider requesting a callback from me personally. If you have a friend that runs a business or is a marketer, do send them our way. It will help us keep the lights on and producing more juicy content. Listeners to this show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. If you want to learn yourself as to how to create content, maybe you want to make a podcast or your very own video, just download our free series on how to create a podcast and video at the very bottom of neural.com slash media.